I'm going to be sharing on basically a, a name that Isaiah, um, in the book of Isaiah, has for God. And um, he calls God the Holy One of Israel. And this is kind of his favorite name um, for God. And um, we spent about a year, I think, probably two years ago in our life group, we spent about a year going through the book of Isaiah. And before that, I spent some time in it um, myself. And it's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I'm trusting that this morning you would be inspired um, to read the book of Isaiah for yourself. Um, so much of what I have to say this morning um, is kind of backed by this one commentary by John N. Oswald. Um, so if you're interested in the book of Isaiah, I'd really encourage you to get it. It's been such a blessing to me. So this morning, we really, my goal is just to unpack um, Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. And I want to do this because in it, we find the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. We, we find kind of the dominant reason for the atonement and, and the good news of a God who in love bridged this canyon between man and God. So the, this term, the Holy One of Israel, occurs 31 times in the Bible, and 26 of these times happen in the book of Isaiah. So it's quite a dominant term that Isaiah has. And in this term, we actually get a glimpse of some of Isaiah's theology. You know, like who does Isaiah see God as? So 26 times Isaiah in, the book of, Isaiah in his book is saying that if we have a concept of God that is not formed by a recognition of the holiness of God, it is an inadequate view of God. And yet in the same term, we see that God is not only just, you know, holy, but actually he is the holy one of Israel. So we see this powerful picture of an absolutely holy God, yet a God who wants to be of an unholy people. He wants to bring an unholy people to himself, and he wants them to know him and delight in him. And what's interesting in the book of Isaiah, this term, the holy one of Israel, actually kind of serves as a summary of the book as a whole. It's in a way um, both Isaiah's view of who God is and also a summary of what um, God was saying through him through the book. And I'm, I'm praying and trusting that his own theology of who God is would come and thicken and deepen our theology of who God is. My prayer is that we will leave on the one hand with this kind of like humbling, terrifying view of the holiness of God and yet at the same time a fresh joy and appreciation for what we have received in Christ. So just a quick overview, the book of Isaiah um, is an incredible book. It actually contains much of the themes of like kind of biblical theology. It is one of the most succinct books in the whole Bible. Basically meaning like it's one of the books that holds us in it like all these, you know, the different ways that God is revealing himself throughout the whole Bible. Much of those themes are held within the book of Isaiah. Um, not many books, other books in the Bible, actually comprehend um, the whole of biblical theology so completely as this book. Isaiah has 66 chapters, which kind of funnily enough coincide with the 66 chapters of the whole Bible. In the book of Isaiah, the holiness of God is kind of depicted as evidently and as blatantly as anywhere in the Old Testament. And yet, in the same book, the unchanging grace of God is depicted as beautifully as anywhere in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah, in fact, is actually kind of known um, in kind of the scholar circles um, as the fifth gospel. 
just because the gospel is like so blatantly that like actually, you know, this is kind of included as part of the gospels because it has the clearest picture of Jesus, of the Messiah in the whole of the Old Testament. So this morning, I'm wanting us to just take a quick journey through the book of Isaiah with a focus on Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. And we'll focus then in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And I'm really feeling like God wants to say something there um, because it is interesting, like last week um, in Liberty, which is kind of one of our sister churches, uh, one of the elders there, Matt, preached through Isaiah 6. I heard someone, Shaul was telling me that in the advanced conference, someone preached on Isaiah 6. And I feel like God's got something to say um, to us this morning. And then at the end, I'm wanting to just close. So we're going to do this kind of overview and then close and look at some of the implications of this, this name of God for our own experience and Isaiah's vision of the Lord and what, how, what we can learn from that experience in our walk with God. So firstly, the Holy One of Israel throughout the book of Isaiah. So we see the kind of truth of this, this description, as I said, through the, the book of Isaiah as a whole. And the book of Isaiah kind of, you see this shift from a people of Israel who are untrusting, rebellious, and arrogant to a people of Israel who suddenly become kind of humble and trusting and obedient to God. An unholy people who become holy. In chapters 1 to 5, we see this kind of contrast um, depicted quite vividly. We see an unholy people who rebel against God and are separated from Him because of their sin. We see in, in these first chapters that their kind of moral radars are so shot that they're calling things that are evil good and good things evil. And I think we can see that quite clearly in our own cultures. So it's this portrait in these first, first five chapters of a people who are completely unholy, but yet it's in direct contrast to glimpses and prophecies about a God who is absolutely holy. Isaiah and I want to just read uh, verse 16 and then from verse 20. Verse 16, it says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then verse 20, we see the people, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. I'm sure we'll see some of those at rocking the daisies. And valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. But within these first five chapters, you see quite a depressing picture of who the people of Israel are like. And yet alongside this, uh, in, in sections of chapters two and four, we see glimmers of hope. Isaiah prophesying about the the unholy people who will will be redeemed and will be restored, who will be made holy and clean, and who God will actually make the people to be his tabernacle, and he will dwell with them. Look at Isaiah 4, 3 to 5. And who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem. How beautiful is that? From its midst, by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, 
Then the Lord, here comes his presence to dwell with him. The Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. So we see this contrast. Unholy people, yes, this prophetic word of saying God will make them holy. And we kind of left at the end of chapters 5 thinking, how is that going to happen? Completely unholy people. How is God going to clean them and make them holy? How is this tremendous change kind of going to be brought about? How can an unholy people come and dwell with an absolutely holy God? So it's kind of at this moment that we see Isaiah chapter 6 and we see the vision, Isaiah's vision of the Lord kind of step in for us. And this is the key text for us this morning. So we see the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah's favorite term, in reference to Isaiah's vision of the Lord. So in Isaiah 6, we see a turning point in the life of Isaiah, in, in his own life, but we also see this glimpse of the means by which this change can happen. You know, the means by which the unholy people can now be made holy. It is Isaiah's vision of a God who is totally and absolutely holy, and yet at the same time, wants to be with the people. This is in fact one of the most significant moments uh, throughout the Old Testament in God's kind of redemptive work. We see, you know, if, you, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you kind of see God working and working and working and working and then there's a key moment, you know, like the Exodus. And then God's working, 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 working and there's another key moment of God kind of more fully and more blatantly saying, hey, this is the redeeming work that I'm wanting to do. And Isaiah 6 is one of those passages. So I want to just read it for us quickly and then we'll spend some time unpacking it. It's Isaiah 6 uh, verse 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then verse 8, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, Lord, send me. Now, as you read this, like in preparing for this, I thought like, how do I, how do I bring across some of the power of what's happening in this moment? And you actually almost can't. Like Isaiah himself doesn't even explain what happened. You know, like this is what it meant. or This is how powerful it was. This is how significant it was. He just tells us what happened. Like this is what happened. God has to do the rest and kind of show us the power and the beauty in it. But this is a scene of absolute holiness and might. Where if words fall 
inadequate to actually explain what's happening here. You see that these powerful kind of angelic beings, the seraphim, you know, we would think in our minds, wow, like these seraphim, these angels, and they are hovering in the presence of God, and even them, seeing the holiness of God, have to take two of their wings to cover their eyes because they can't look at His holiness. God is truly a God of holiness and power. Verse 3, and the one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Angels are saying God isn't just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. There's this threefold repetition which emphasizes kind of like the completeness of his holiness, his splendor, and his power. They're saying there's nothing better, nothing sweeter, and nothing more powerful than God. And God's holiness means that he is is wholly um, dedicated to his own glory because there's nothing greater or nothing more powerful in the world. Uh, John Piper, who is a good friend of mine, um, (laughs) describes God's holiness um, in reference to this text like this. He says, the possibilities of language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into the vast unknown. Holiness carries us to the brink, and from there on the experience of God is beyond words. And again, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So God is a God of holiness and the whole earth is filled with his glory. The glory of God, in fact, is actually the holiness of God revealed. It's like God revealing his holiness. Every corner of the earth crying out to declare the holiness of God. Now, as we move on, we see that Isaiah has this incredible vision of who God is, the Holy One of Israel. And yet, look at his response. You know, like I think if you, were, you started reading this passage and you stopped at verse 5, you might think Isaiah would be like, wow. You know, his response might be, God is powerful, God is finite, I'm an infinite kind of like human being. But how does he respond? His response is out of being stunned at the stark contrast between God being clean and him being unclean. He's stunned at the holiness of God and the stark contrast of his sin. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah's vision, the crushing difference between man and God is character. God is holy, righteous, and pure. Isaiah is sinful and unclean. Now, you must remember that, you know, if you think about this, Isaiah, we have actually every reason to believe that Isaiah was, in our kind of standards, morally pure. He's actually known to be a highly intelligent uh, person, and in fact, uh, 25% of his book, he writes it in words that people don't know how to 
translate. They have to kind of guess at how they translate it because his intellectual level was so high. So we, it's, it's not this guy who's coming in and is like, we would look on him and say, wow, he's filthy and sinful. He should be lying down prostrate in, in, in front of God. Actually, we would probably be saying, he's pretty good. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're embarrassing everybody. Why don't you, like, get off the floor? You're embarrassing us. But actually, Isaiah, with a vision of the holiness of God, sees the true state of his sinfulness and falls to the floor. And in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, we see that Isaiah gives us the reason for why he did this. It's because he had a clear vision of God. And a clear vision of God gives us a clear vision of who we are. But I want us to notice that the purpose of Isaiah's vision is not finished. You know, God didn't come and say, oh, I'm going to reveal myself to Isaiah just so he can see how sinful he is. You know, just to put him in his place and then I'll leave him there. But Isaiah's, I mean, God's purpose is not yet done. Because through Isaiah's vision of the Lord, Isaiah himself actually finds restoration. We see that God's purpose was to enact the redeeming work which his sins required. The purpose of the vision is to enact the redeeming work which the revealed sins required. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Those unclean lips are cleansed. The guilt revealed to him is taken away and his sins have been atoned for. And not only was his debt paid, you know, the debt of his sin was paid, but actually his heart was made pure. He was purified. This unholy man was brought into the presence of a holy God because God had purified him. And as I I was uh, the other day, just like kind of reading this, and you almost like... I feel like you kind of get a fright when you read Isaiah 6 and you get to the end here and you're kind of like reading, 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 reading and you're like, sheesh. Yeah, kind of close your book, think like, sheesh, if the Jews knew this was here, they probably wouldn't. You know, it's like the gospel in here is like so rich and so powerful that you kind of read it and you're like, yes, like I've never seen the power of the gospel and the work of God so clearly and so vividly in the Old Testament and it just gives you this rich understanding of God has continually been doing a redeeming work that's always been pointing to Christ. So we see the passage then closes with a purified prophet. The prophet Isaiah, he's purified and then he's sent out with a message to the people. So again, God is highlighting his heart for a people. He's saying, Isaiah, I've brought you in. I've shown you your, your sin. I've purified you, made you holy. And now I want to send you with a message to the people, the other people that I want to draw to myself. As we move through, we see that the experience of the man of unclean lips becomes the experience of the people of unclean lips, the people of Israel. So the Holy One of Israel and the people of Israel. So Isaiah's own experience of God gives us a glimpse of the means by which an unholy people can be made holy. That the experience of Isaiah can become the people of Israel's experience. And how this kind of, the solution of this is worked out is actually the focus of the rest of the book from chapter 7. So the man of unclean lips and the people of unclean lips can be made pure. 
So there are three key sections in the rest of the book, and all of these, again, kind of correlate with Isaiah's favorite term for God, the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 7 to 39, we see a focus on trust. God calling them to trust Him, and yet the whole time the people of Israel are untrusting. They're rebellious. Then in chapter 40 to 55, we see a focus on redemption. So the first chapter, sin is revealed. Then 40 to 55, redemption, prophecies about God is going to come and redeem these unholy people. And then 56 to 66, the redeemed are then called to righteous living. So we see Isaiah's own experience of God becomes the experience of God's people. So chapter 7 to 39, you'll see in, in, in chapter 7, Isaiah actually prophesies about the punishment that the people will face if they continue to walk in their sinful ways and continue to not trust in God. And yet, in chapter 9 and 11, we see like these prophecies and promises of a people who will walk and who will learn to trust God and who will be restored. Then down in chapter 36, we see Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7 coming true. The people continue to walk in rebellion and in sinfulness, and the punishment which God said would come does come, and they are captives. And yet, just one chapter later, we see the king Hezekiah cries out to God, puts his trust in him, and in one night, the Assyrian army which oppressed Israel is destroyed. But then, two chapters later, we see Hezekiah, sinful man, fails again, and we're reminded that um, like all other kings that came before him, he wasn't the promised Messiah. He wasn't the king that God was going to use to redeem his people. We are left waiting for another. And we're left with a sense of the ungodliness of the people of Israel. But again, this isn't the end of their story. We see in chapters 40 to 55 a focus on redemption. God is coming. You see, you see the sinful people. God is coming to work a work of redemption. In chapter 40 to 48, there are three, great, three um, great themes. And again, these align to Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. The first one is the universal greatness and majesty of God, that God is holy. Secondly, God has an unreserved love for the people of Israel. And thirdly, this great proclamation as Israel as the chosen of God. This focus on God as the only one worthy of the title holy, that no other gods um, around him could compare, that he alone can do the redemptive work required by their sin. And again, like in in verse 5 of chapter 6, we left with the sense of like how. How is God going to do this. In chapter 49 to 55, we see the means through which God does this redeeming work and promises that redemption is possible. In chapter 42, we see stunning glimpses of one who is to come, who will be the true Israel, that he will be all that Israel was meant to be. And because of his righteous obedience, God can justly forgive a sinful humanity. And I think this is just such an important thing for us to remember, that in Isaiah's description of redemption, the righteousness of God was never put aside. 
that God in his holiness, in the, in the character of who he was, couldn't just say, hey, there's a sinful, sinful humanity, I'm just going to let it go, you know? I'll just let it go and, and, and bring them all to myself. Because if he did that, he would have actually ceased to be God. He would not be holy and he would not be just. And this morning, as Bates was just calling us to respond in prayer, the thing that kept going in my mind was, thank you, Father, that you didn't lay aside your holiness. Thank you that you didn't lay aside your holiness. You held on to it. And because of that, we can be truly redeemed. So in Isaiah's description of redemption, righteousness is not put aside. Actually, all its demands are met. All its demands are met at this great cost of love and self-sacrifice that was necessary to meet its demands. In Isaiah's theology, we see this, the beauty of the holy God, that his holiness requires redemption. Again, he cannot put aside, his holiness requires redemption. At the same time, we have, these, we have a sinful humanity that he's wanting to redeem to himself. And in Isaiah's theology, both of these things are held up with absolute purity. And then we see the means through which God uses to accomplish that. That God worked a redeeming work to count them, Isaiah and the people of Israel, and to count us as holy. And in this vision, we see that we're not saved because we deserve it. No, we, we sinful humanity prostrate on the ground in the face of a holy God. But we saved because God, in his love, sees us through the suffering and death of Christ. And then chapter 56 to 66, a focus on righteousness. This is a focus on like the kind of like oral and ethical life of the believer. A redeemed people who are now called to walk and live in holiness. God purified Isaiah for a purpose, he purified Israel for a purpose, and he purifies us for a purpose. That Christ, the divine warrior, the anointed Messiah, defeated our sin in a climactic way in order that the Spirit of the Lord would make us like himself, would make us holy. We see this in Isaiah 59. So the call of Isaiah is that rebellious nations in Christ can share in the holy character of God. So we see the experience of the man of unclean lips becomes the experience of the people of unclean lips. And I want to just look at a few implications for us. In what ways should, ex should Isaiah's experience become our own? Firstly, we need a vision and a theology of the holiness of God. I think for myself, if I think around my own theology and I think about some of the theology of the church, I think, I think it often falls short. Like I think sometimes we lack a vision of the true holiness of God. Sometimes we are assume, you know, God's your friend. Or, you know, you, you weren't actually that bad. You know, like we don't, you don't like, I think if, we, if you look at Isaiah 6 and you see the vision of Isaiah of the Lord, I don't think that's common in our experience or in our vision or our understanding of God. So firstly, we need a vision and a theology of the holiness of God. J.R. Packer defines God's holiness like this. Everything about him that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. He goes on to describe how the core concept of God's holiness is actually his righteousness. 
his moral purity is what makes him holy. So is this our view of God? Do we have a view like Isaiah, a vision like Isaiah of the holiness of God, a God who is high and lifted up, that nothing in all the universe compares to him, and the whole earth cries out his glory? A theology or a vision of God without his holiness is a distorted one. It's distorted because it will, number one, belittle God. We won't see him for who he truly is. And number two, it'll begin to blur the chasm between man and God. The canyon that Jesus had to cross will be blurred. Secondly, we need to see the reality of our sin. This was the experience of Isaiah. True view of God gave him a true view of himself. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of... uh, Peter. So about 700 years later, um, in Luke 5, we see this fish narrative. And uh, basically, Jesus is preaching to people. Um, he's at kind of the water's edge, and there's so many people that he's preaching to that they're pressing him up closer and closer to the water's edge. And um, he then looks out onto the water and sees two boats and calls for Peter to come and get him, you know, because he's kind of a little bit claustrophobic, needs some personal space. And he gets onto the boat and then continues to teach these people from the boat. And once he's finished teaching, he tells Peter to kind of go out a little deeper and to cast his net into the water. And Peter was a skilled fisherman, so that's what he did for a living. He had been fishing the entire night. So you can imagine what he was thinking. Like, who are you? What are you telling me to do? This is what I do for a living. You're just a teacher. uh, But anyways, reluctantly, he kind of obeys. And we know what happened. You know, they caught so many fish that their boat began to sink. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, I don't think that Peter, when he was fishing the night before, like, kept missing the mark. You know, like, he didn't really know where the hot spots were in this lake, and he didn't really know where to throw his net. You know, he just kept missing it. But I actually think that as he threw his net, you know, as Jesus commanded him to throw out his net, Peter was reluctant to the command of Jesus and the Master, but the fish weren't. That as Jesus called out for the nest to be cast, these fish obeyed him and swam to their deaths at the bidding of their master. And then look again. You see this powerful moment of the holiness and the power of God revealed. And look at Peter's response. Peter falls on his knees with a vision of who God is and he cries out in Luke 5, 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O Lord. So a true view of God for Peter opens his eyes to a true reality of his sin. That Peter literally, I think inside of himself, he would want to kind of like jump out of the boat and flee. He sees the holiness and the purity of God. He sees his sinful nature and he wants to flee. So if we, when we have a true vision like Isaiah and Peter of who God is, we'll have a true view of who we were and perhaps some of us who aren't Christians of who we are. Sinful men and women of unclean lips living in a world of unclean people. And I think even as I'm saying this, it probably sits quite harsh on you, you know? It's like quite jarring. Um, But I think it's because we're just so used to it. We're so used to sin. We're so accustomed to our sin. And we've almost lost sight of some of the gravity involved in defying God. 
Jonathan Edwards, in one of his most famous sermons, Sinners in the Hand of Angry God, said this. He said, never did a prince have a rebel rebel against him in such depth as our rebellion against God. Never did a prince have a rebel rebel against him in such depth as our rebellion against God. So a true view of God puts his holy character and our sinful nature in right perspective. And then thirdly, we need to see God's heart for his people. Isaiah 46. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So we see this picture of God, who is the Holy One of Israel, and yet... He sets himself upon a people. That a true view of God and his, no, his holiness and our sinful nature doesn't contradict the love of God. In fact, it should heighten it. That a holy God who could not be in the presence of a holy, unholy people chose to set his love upon us. And this is what it means, you know, when the Bible talks about you being foreknown by God, it actually means you've been foreloved. That God, before the creation of the world, foreloved you and desired to have you in his presence and set his love upon you. That God set his love upon Isaiah, upon the people of Israel, and upon us, all who believe in Jesus. And this, for me, is one of the most powerful pictures in the book of, the, of Isaiah, and actually in the whole Old Testament as a whole. It's just like God's unending pursuit of people. He pursues them. He shows his love towards them. He provides for them. And, and sinful humanity just continue to fail and fail and fail and continue to rebel and rebel, and yet God doesn't lose heart. He doesn't grow weary. He continues in enduring love and in pursuit of that people. Look at Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is God's relentless pursuit of the people of Israel setting his love upon them and through the purifying work of Jesus Christ bringing them near that they would dwell with him. But thirdly, God's heart is for us. He wants to be, us to be with him. Then fourthly, we need to behold the grace of God and the powerful purifying work of Christ. Isaiah 6, 6 to 7, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah 52, 9 to 10, Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So behold, Christian, 
behold the purifying work of Christ. Until we realize the true state that we are saved from, we will not grasp the fullness of what Christ has done for us. We will not fully behold the work that Jesus has done to purify us and to bring us into the presence of a holy God. Jesus himself, I think it's in, a, in Mark 2, um, in, response to the, in response to the Pharisees, kind of compares a paraplegic that he's about to heal with the sin um, of humanity. And basically says, is it easier for me to heal this man or to forgive his sins? And he's saying that it is a far greater work to, to heal his, to um, purify his sins than to heal his physical ailments. And as I read that, I was thinking, do I believe that? Paralyzed man, Jesus heals him. Or my own sin, Jesus purifying me. I feel like sometimes we belittle the work of Christ in our lives to this kind of cold to be cured or cut that needs to be healed. So until we see our previous nature like Isaiah did, prostrate on the ground because of our sin before a holy God, we will not fully grasp the power and the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. That the cross didn't conquer a cold or heal a cut. The cross took what was dead and made it alive. That Jesus on the cross was the burning coal which purified the unclean lips of his people. And yet we, unlike Isaiah, were not purified by an angel. We were purified by the Son of God. He purified us at the cost of his own life. Paul in the book of Ephesians explains how the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God used to deal with our sin, to make us an unholy people, to make us holy. Do we believe that? We think of the resurrection power of Jesus. Is that the same power it took to take a sinful humanity, to take a dead person who is spiritually dead and raise him into spiritual life? A vision like Isaiah doesn't belittle the work of Christ or make us feel any less loved. In fact, it heightens it. It should make us feel more loved because God has set his love upon us to the point of sending his own son to die for us. Purifying us so that we would dwell with him. So God is the Holy One of Israel and oh how we should love him for it. A God who is absolutely holy being an unholy people and saying I want to be with those people. I want to put my love upon those people and I want to do it so much that I'm willing to send my son. Die for them. Make them pure. Make them holy, and as they are made pure and holy, they can then come and dwell in my presence. Father God, I thank you that you did not set aside your holiness. I thank you that you're both a holy and absolutely pure and righteous God, and yet your heart is for a people. Your heart is for us. 
And Father, I want to pray this morning that as we just, just a little glimpse into Isaiah and his vision of who you were and who you are, I want to pray that you would heighten our vision of your holiness, Father. Lift our eyes to the wonder and the power of who you are, God of the universe. The one who made the mountains, you know, in between which we live. God, the creator and the sustainer of everything in the world. Totally righteous, totally pure, totally other. And yet we, sinful humanity, human beings, at the cost of your son, you brought us near. I pray this morning that you would heighten our view of your love, Father. That we were not sick, that we did not just have a cut or a small bleed, that you had to heal or you had to mend or you had to cure, but that we were dead, spiritually dead, and yet through your Son you've made us alive and brought us into your presence. 